for tuning in to Doing It Differently, a podcast about creative careers in medicine. I'm your host, Jenny Chang, and today our invited guest is Dr. Philippa Edmonston, who shares her wisdom about refugee health advocacy and exploring specialties in medicine in her work at Perth Children's Hospital. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that the production of this podcast takes place on Wadjuk Noongar land, and I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present, and express my gratitude to be able to walk, learn and live on this beautiful country that we call home. Please join me in warmly welcoming Pip to the podcast. Our audience is very excited to hear about what you do in PCH, but also beyond that. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work? Sure. Um, so right now I am an infectious diseases fellow um, at Perth Children's Hospital in my first year of training. Um, And I think the journey to get here has been a little bit of a a long one, but a really, really interesting one. So I'm about um, what we call a PGY8, so eight years into my training. And along the way, I've done a variety of lots of different rotations in different areas. So last year, um, I had a couple of really interesting jobs. So for six months, I was the the Refugee Health Fellow um, at Perth Children's Hospital. So providing care to a lot of um, refugee and asylum seeker children. Uh, here in Western Australia, and I also um, had a role as the immunisation registrar, which was really, really interesting, particularly um, as the COVID vaccines were getting rolled out um, in in Western Australia and indeed globally, and I was there to see the start of the vaccine programs for the 5 to 11-year-olds. So that was really, really interesting to be in that space, particularly with, I think, the global health implications of of the vaccinations as well, and how just thinking towards how do we get our global uh, population vaccinated. Um, I suppose prior um, to that, I was doing sort of a a variation of or a number of rotations in paediatrics throughout my paediatric basic training. So some general paediatrics, a little bit of immunology and prior to that, my basic training. That's sort of like my the very, very short version of uh, my doctoring life to date. Incredible. Have you always been interested in global health and paediatrics? I think from my first year in medical school, definitely. I was a country kid, so I grew up in Bunbury and probably had quite a a sheltered childhood. I moved to Perth and it was a big cosmopolitan city. And I think um, a lot of kids from my generation probably really struggled to find themselves and find what they were interested in. You're suddenly, you know, shoved into university and there are all these really cosmopolitan kids around you and you sort of feel a little bit um, out of place. Um, And so I decided to throw myself into everything that the university had to offer. And a part of that was I just booked a ticket and went to Global Health Conference. Um, And that was in Melbourne um, way back in 2008. And I was really blown away by these really, really serious issues that I sort of had no comprehension about before. I think we all really knew about that climate change was a big issue because the, the Al Gore movie had come out and so I knew that was an issue but I didn't really know about anything else like I really didn't understand the distinction between an asylum seeker and a refugee um, you know I had no idea sort of about food production and food systems and how they impact global populations um, sort of like animal husbandry and agriculture you know um, women's um, studies things like that all of these other global issues and so that was sort of my um, you know very very quick Um, and sort of heavy introduction into global health. And I think um, my interest just went from there. I ended up joining InterHealth, which as you would know is the UWA Medical Students Global Health Group. Um, And from there, a number of subcommittees. So was um, involved in Code Green in my time, Links, 
um, teddy bear hospital, a number of other things. And I think moving on to my professional life, I've tried to, to carry that interest through. Uh, I ended up doing my elective in Tanzania, in Africa, and along the way ended up um, going to, to Calcutta in India as a part of the um, Institute for Indian Mother and Child. Um, and I've also done some, some work in Vanuatu as well. And I think those kinds of experiences gave a really sort of uh, interesting insight uh, into the challenges that developing countries face, particularly in, in those healthcare environments that we have no understanding of because we have such a world-class system where everyone is able to access care um, and we're able to transport patients from rural locations, which just isn't the case in those places. Um, and I suppose all of these experiences have really led me to try and uh, do jobs such as refugee health to go into the field of infectious diseases because I think that's really the area that we're going to be able to be really impactful as doctors in the future. We know that COVID is a massive problem. We know that's really, it's a global health issue when you think about vaccines and vaccine distribution, you know, making sure that you have, you know, a vaccine for the world, which Pfizer probably really isn't because we know that you have to refrigerate it at negative 60. So how are you going to distribute a vaccine like that around Africa and all of these sorts of issues? We know that with these other issues such as climate change, we'll be changing our seasonality, our patterns of disease, um, our what foods we're able to grow and eat and infectious diseases kind of links into all of these things. And I think that's a, a massive area, not only clinically we can have an impact, but also in terms of advocacy. How can we make overarching policies that can impact a large number of people to get the best outcome for the global population? And in what ways has advocacy become a part of your career? Look, I think in lots of different ways, because I think that when you, you put your advocacy glasses on, you start to see those pockets of injustice everywhere. Um, and that might be sort of within your own hospital, to out in the community, um, to even having those conversations at the dinner table with like your racist aunt or uncle or something like that. And I think you can incorporate advocacy into everything that you do. Um, so one of the, the bits of advocacy that I do, I sit on the management committee for CARAD, which is the Centre for Asylum Seekers, uh, Refugees, and detainees here in Perth. Um, and they do some really wonderful things, not so much for our refugees, because um, as some people listening in may or may not know, um, if you are given refugee status, you're essentially awarded all the same rights as an Australian citizen. So you're able to access Centrelink, you're able to access your Medicare and all those other services that are provided by the government. If you're not given that status, if you're sort of placed into that asylum seeker basket, you might have work rights, but you don't get those other perks or benefits. So you'll be paying for all of your medical care. And as we know, a lot of these traumatised people that have come to Australia, they probably don't even have the capacity to work to pay for those things, let alone be able to cough up the money for a GP visit or even a hospital stay. So CARAD does amazing work in providing for these people, helping them to, to get accommodation, um, food packages. Um, we have some amazing caseworkers that advocate for um, our clients to do applications um, for visa statuses, and also things as simple as homework help for children of asylum seekers and refugees who might be struggling, particularly as English is likely their second language. So I have a little um, six-year-old boy that I tutor every week. Um, and I think that's the beautiful thing about advocacy. Or you don't have to feel like you're changing the world to be actually making a difference because you can make a one-to-one -one difference 
um, on that really personal level with the skills that you already have and for that person you might change the world it might make such a profound difference um, and I think that's the the overall message that I, I, you know, I'm really passionate about advocacy can be small can be big it can be whatever you have to offer and you shouldn't judge yourself by the degree of advocacy that you feel you can offer mm -hmm. I definitely agree because I feel like often what holds people back from contributing is a perception that you have to do something huge or something big in order to contribute to something you care about but like you said it can be whatever you can offer and what was your experience in balancing your interests with the demands of like medical school and also medical career yeah I, I think it's a great question and I think my keeping sort of my passion alive probably did dip in my first couple of years of being a doctor I think in medical school you have that passion because you have all this free time and you're around these people on these amazing inspiring committees and then you start work you start doing shift work and then you have all of these other demands like paying for college fees or trying to figure out what training program you want to get into i know for our surgical colleagues and sort of other maybe you know pathology colleagues there are exams that you need to do to get into training as opposed to my area which is pediatrics you do your exam when you're already in training so you've got a bit more security so for those first few years it can be quite chaotic and i, I think for for me i always knew that i wanted to do global health within pediatrics but getting into pediatrics was that first stepping stone and back back in the day that was quite a, a competitive thing so i really knew that i kind of had to drop everything and just focus on pediatrics um, and so i did a number of courses such as the Diploma of Child Health, I think it's now called the Sydney Program for Child Health, and sort of got involved with a number of the side hustles in the paediatric area to sort of reach that first stepping stone. And from there, when I had a little bit more time in my hands, I sort of had that mental load taken off of me. I suppose I started to, to get a little bit more involved in like the junior doctors societies and do things like that. Um, but I, I agree, it can be a challenge to balance how did I do it? I look back and I don't actually know. <laughs> uh, I think it's a matter of just being really organized and being realistic about what your capacity is because there's no point in signing up for 10 committees if A, you're not gonna be able to attend or B, you're going to be resentful because you're so tired or B, you wanna go out and have dinner with your friends. And I think you need to balance your career and your training with your advocacy, but also with those other things in life that are really important to you. So whether that's your sport, whether that's going out and having a wine at a bar, um, your running, whatever that might be, pottery, there are so many other things that are really, really important for your mental health that you also need to incorporate into who you are and what you do every day. And that I think we run the risk of really burning ourselves out if we just focus on that line of advocacy. Because a lot of the stuff that you deal with, it can be really quite, um, quite sad and quite hard hitting. So you need to be able to compartmentalise those things as well. Make sure you're taking care of your own mental health and actually enjoying things because there's no point in doing advocacy if it's killing you inside mm. and you're just going to burn out a short while later. So really, it's trying to balance the core things in your life, whether that's having a calendar, having someone else to keep you accountable or just scheduling sort of those things in your life which you, you don't compromise on. And I think a lot of us forget to nourish like who we are at the core of it all. Yeah, yeah I think what you spoke about, about burnout particularly in the advocacy sphere is very, very like true. How did you navigate, I guess, your experiences of compassion fatigue? Oh, it can be really, really tough. 
I definitely go through periods where I'm not particularly kind and I can see that in myself and often that is a time in my life where I'm, I'm a big yoga fan, I'm, I'm a yoga teacher in training, I find that that is the thing that makes me feel happier and more ready to face the day. I can tell when I've skipped a few classes because I come to work and I'm really cranky and I don't quite know why and I'll be short with people um, and I'll snap at people and sort of I'll sit down afterwards and say, that really wasn't nice, that was unnecessary, why did you do that? Um, and often, like I said, it's because, you know, I'm hungry, I've missed my yoga class. And so going back to sort of your, your no compromise things, it's really important to keep doing those. Mm. My, my yoga teacher is a very, very wise woman um, and she talks about going and doing your thing, whether that's your yoga class, going and doing it even when you don't feel like doing it because it's really important to keep that routine to tell yourself that you can do hard things even when you're not feeling like them. And I think being injured is a little bit different, but if we started to drop those other important things in our life, when things get tough, mm. that's when things can spiral out of control. So that's part of keeping yourself accountable. You know, even when you, if you go to a class or whatever your hobby is, even if you only do half or a quarter of what you arrived to do, at least you did something. At least you did something purely just for you. That's not an assignment. That's not some extra work that's been, been lumped on you. Um, and for me, every day I've started to wake up um, and I know it sounds really silly, but also sort of doing a bit of a mantra to myself and being like, I'll be kind and I'll be compassionate today. If someone calls me and I'm like, this is so silly, how do they not know the answer to this? You have to remind yourself that everybody's learning, everybody knows different things. And so you have to take a deep breath and think, if I were in this person's shoes, how would I want this person to respond to me? So these are actually basic things that our mums and our dads and our aunties and our uncles have probably been telling us mm. for, for decades. But I feel they, they actually really work. It's when you're doing these small acts of kindness, I find that it actually does nourish you and you are able to keep on going. If you are not able to sort of rekindle your passion, if you're not able to bring your kindness back, that's a sign that you're exhausted. So whether that's taking a bit of time off work, seeing your GP, um, dropping a couple of your commitments, just to get yourself back on track, if you need to go and see a psychologist, because we know all of these issues are, are real. We know that mental health in doctors is a massive issue. I think they've done some surveys which have shown up to sort of 80, 90% of us have had either clinical depression or a major depressive episode um, at some stage in our medical school years or our training. And I think we, we need to stop whispering about these things. We, are, we all know colleagues or maybe it's ourselves that have been affected um, and we need to take time out to address these issues if it is the case. I feel like, and I talk about this with my colleagues a lot, the expectations and the amount of fences and hurdles that you're expected to jump these days comparative to our predecessors is getting larger. Um, training's getting more difficult to get into. Not only are you expected to have a master's but then sort of think about a PhD while you're still in training and what are the 10 extracurriculars that you're doing on the side of that and are you doing this audit and this case report and this research um, and it gets exhausting and some weeks I look at my calendar and there's probably like 5% of spare time when I'm not rushing off to a meeting or doing something else. And when you start to notice that, it's really a matter of taking a deep breath and pairing it back, making sure you've got that time for you. Mm. I think that's very relevant. In today's world where everyone's always hustling or trying to look for the next thing, 
Exactly. And it sounds like the value of like nourishing yourself and being present is it's like everything nowadays to keep us going. Absolutely. I I feel really really strongly about this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that's so helpful to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any advice for our current junior doctors and medical students about following your passion through it all? I think there's a lot of pressure on junior doctors or even medical students to know exactly what you want to do quite at, at a still quite a junior state in your phase in your training. Um, and I feel like that's a question you're going to get asked a lot when you go into the hospitals, because you know, when you come and do a paediatrics rotation um, with us, of course we're gonna ask you because we're trying to figure out what do you want to get out of this? And that's the same with other people in other rotations. They're trying to see what things they have to offer you. But it does get exhausting having you know 20 people constantly asking, what do you want to do? And a lot of the time, the answer we get is, I honestly don't know. It's actually a very small percentage of students that are like, I know I want to do this and I definitely want to do this and that's that. And I think the best advice is really to keep an open mind, try a bit of everything, even if you think you're not going to enjoy it because you might be pleasantly surprised. I think I entered medical school being a massive Grey's Anatomy fan and being like, definitely gonna be a surgeon. Did my first surgical rotation, hated it. Then I was sort of like, now where do I go? And there, I think the beauty of medicine is that there are so many different things that you can do. Do you love dealing with people every day? Well, maybe you need to be sort of a clinician who sees patients every day. Are you not so fussed on people, but you wanna do research that will impact on people's life? Well, there's a niche for that in practically all aspects of medicine. You know, uh, do you love anatomy? Do you wanna be a surgeon or a radiologist? Or do you really love sort of the, you know, the ins and outs of the science and the, the biology of things? Well, maybe pathology is for you. And I think that's just, that's the joy of this profession is that there is literally something for everyone. And I think we need to, to stop this, um, this attitude of needing to tick off all of these goals by a certain time frame. And I know that I'm definitely a type A personality <laughs> and a lot of medical um, and health professionals are. I think we need to take a break from sort of timelining our lives and being like, well, in five years time, you know, I'm gonna have this done and be a specialist. I think planning is important and you will get asked about this in interviews, but I think we also need to be cognizant of again, that plans change, our dreams change, the trajectory of our lives change. There might be unexpected changes. You might get an offer to go overseas and that might put your training on hold, but the experience you might get there will benefit you in different ways. Um, and I think that if we stick too hard to this timeline that we've made a number of years ago, it probably prevents us from experiencing a lot of the joys that we could otherwise do. Mm. Um, I think within you know, my own training, there is this definite sort of internal fear of, oh, I'm, I'm gonna drag out my training too long, I need to make it to consultancy. But when I've actually done those other jobs that don't necessarily count towards my core training, They've been really enjoyable and you've got, I've gained these amazing other skills, such as in the immunisation role. You know, you, you learn a lot of skills about you know, dealing with other people, um, about research that you never thought, and it really changes your perspective on sort of medicine itself and the way that you think your career might go. Mm. So I think sort of the short version is to keep an open mind, plan, but don't be too rigid with that planning. Mm. And 
be really open-minded to opportunities. And if your dreams and your plans change, then go with that. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You don't need to feel guilty about that. So how would you describe that feeling of like knowing that you're in the right place and that everything led to this moment? I think we do get those moments, but we probably don't get those moments as often as we think we might. Um, how do you know that you're in the right training? Well, that's, I don't think you ever do. I think you can try and find something that's the best fit for you, but acknowledging there's always gonna be hard days. There's always gonna be days where you're gonna walk out of the hospital or the clinic or the lab and you're going to be like, why the bloody hell did I pick this career and this job? Um, you know, you might have um, an encounter with a patient or a parent or so, even one of your colleagues and you're just like, this is, this is rubbish. Why do I come here every day? <laughs> and so I think acknowledging that it's okay to have those days and that doesn't mean that you're bad at your job or you're in the wrong pathway. I think the reason that you know that you are in the right place for you is that you find that you're constantly building your knowledge and that you want to build and learn upon what you've done. It might be an interesting patient that you've seen that you actually want to go home and read more about as opposed to feeling obligated to do it. And I think that's probably the difference, the obligation versus mm -hmm. that, that drive to learn and to know more and to seek information and to be inquisitive and that line of inquiry where you're constantly asking questions. And I think it's that, that sort of that childlike um, inquisitivity that is really, really important. That probably means that you're in that in, heading in the right direction at least. And again, along that pathway, you might change direction and that's okay. But eventually you will find that right fit. And if you don't feel like you're in the, the right training field, like I know colleagues that have been in a training pathway for absolute years and are just not feeling that love. And I think at that point, you need to take a step back and be like, is this right for me? Do I need to change gears? And a lot of people don't because of this fear of, oh, well, you know, I've put you know, X amount of years in, you know, I'm better off just to complete it. And that's probably not the case because you're probably just gonna to continue to be miserable at the end of it with that qualification that you have. So why not have a rethink and a redirect mm -hmm. at that point? Mm -hmm. So it's always asking yourself, I think, as you said, does this spark joy? Mm -hmm. Am I trying to figure out why this happens? Am I constantly asking questions? Do I want to learn and do I want to know more? And that's mm -hmm. probably how you might know. And do you find that that's similar with advocacy as well and volunteering, that that's how you know that you found something that you truly like want to put your heart into? I think for me anyway, I can't speak for, for advocates everywhere. It's that kind of, that, that burning anger on the inside, which actually sounds quite, quite aggressive. <laughs> but when you hear something unjust and it's that feeling bubbling up on the inside where you're like, we can do better, we can do better about this. And you sort of, you channel that internal fury, that bubbling sensation into action. I think you can get to the point where something sad or something unjust happens and you let that consume you and you actually don't do anything productive. You just feel really, really sad. But I think directing that energy into something else to a proactive action is really important. And it can be as simple as checking in on a colleague hey, I notice that you're not feeling or not looking that um, that happy today. Are you okay? So in many different forms. Mm -hmm. And I think channeling, channeling that inner, that inner flame, that inner desire to do something better than you've done the day before.
Mm-hmm. And I think that really summarises how your story reminds us to do what makes us feel alive at the end of the day. I think so. Yeah, and I think for many of us, we feel most alive doing what we love, so it makes sense. That's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I have some rapid-fire questions for you, Fit. Right. So I'll be asking these to everyone we have on this podcast. So are you ready? Yep. Okay, first one. What was the most memorable moment in your work so far? I think one one moment in particular was when I was in, in Vanuatu working on the adult medical ward and there was uh, a woman that was admitted with Guillain-Barre syndrome, so paralysis ascending, and the team took her around to sort of, you know, what they said was their ICU and it was literally just um, a, a little partitioned corner um, of a ward. It wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't negatively pressured. It wasn't completely separate. It literally had a curtain that looked like sort of, you know, those floral curtains from the 50s <laughs> and there was one bed um, and they opened up the, the intubation trolley to try and intubate her uh, and there was a dead rat in there. And I just remember standing there amidst the chaos of it all, thinking, we are so lucky in Australia. We don't know how good we've had it, mm-hmm. um, that we just have pristine hospitals that are staffed. Because I think in the end, this poor woman's um, relatives actually had to sit there overnight and bag her because they didn't actually have a ventilator. And I just remember having that profound feeling of, we are so incredibly privileged. Um, and thinking from that that point onwards, you know, as such a privileged nation, as such privileged individuals, we need to pay that forward in some way for these people that are not so lucky. And I actually don't know what, what happened to, to that woman and she would have been around my age. Um, and it makes you, you think, is she still around? Would she have been around if she had access to, to better medical services? So I think it's those moments that you have that make you acknowledge your privilege. Mm. 100%. Question number two, do you have any regrets? You can ask some really good questions. <laughs> well, I think, I think importantly for medical students, I, I really let study dominate a lot of my university life. Um, and I do feel sort of that I did end up missing out on sort of those other fun things a lot of people do. Um, so I really, from that point of view, I wish that I had like gone to the dancing classes. I wish that I had go, you know, tried rock climbing with my friends and things like that. And there were a lot of things that I said, oh no, 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 I have to study. Um, and that I often ended up like doing nothing. So make sure you're doing those fun things, mm-hmm. but actually like timelining important things for you as well so that you don't feel guilty when you are going and doing them because you know that when you sit down to study a bit later, you're going to do good quality study. Mm-hmm. And I think I let um, myself be kind of sucked into this idea that exams, not, and not just medical school, I went on and did a master's as well, that you know, exams are the be all and the end all. And I sort of sunk a lot of time and anxiety um, into these exams um, when I could have been and you know, doing and feeling, feeling a lot better. So, and I think it's important to remember that because, again, you're shoved into this system, this high-pressure system, this pressure cooker that's like you must get the best marks, you must study, 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 which is important to some degree, but there also needs to be some perspective there as well. And I wish I had had a healthy relationship with academia mm-hmm. and sleep. I skipped a lot of sleep <laughs> in medical school. <laughs> I wouldn't advise 
it makes you very cranky. <laughs> it makes you not able to think straight and learn the next day. And that's why you're there. Mm -hmm. So definitely, again, all of those things, I'm going to sound like a mum. <laughs> Sleeping, making sure that you're doing that exercise, drinking enough water and just being accountable for your time. Mm -hmm. I think those are some very wise words that we all need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Question number three, do you have a book that has changed your life? So I remember reading a book called um, An Imperfect Offering, which is by a man called James Orbinski, who was the head of MSF um, sort of in the, the 1990s. And he responded to the crisis, the genocide in Rwanda um, in, in that decade. Uh, in terms of fiction, because I've tried to tried to read less um, non-fiction, just because sometimes it keeps me up at night, being mm -hmm. like, "Oh my God, the problems with the world." And so I think it's you know also important to read for for um, pleasure as well. Mm -hmm. um, there was a beautiful book um, called "All the Light We Cannot See." can't remember the author but that was a really beautifully profound book that I buy and I recommend in terms of cookbooks can mm -hmm. we mention cookbooks yes I love a good Ottolenghi mm. like anything he cooks or recommends I will eat it delicious <laughs> wonderful and last question for today what are you currently feeling gratitude for I suppose I am grateful of of the safety and the security that that we do have I don't think I have one thing that I'm you know, feeling gratitude for today, but for a whole myriad of things. Mm. And I think, again, it's balancing that with privilege. Mm -hmm. How can I use my privileged status as a white woman on traditional Noongar Buja? How can I use that to make the world a better place? Mm -hmm. I think your words will be something that we all remember for a while because I think so many of us are caught up by inaction, that it's so inspiring to hear your story. And to hear in what ways you've done it differently made a huge difference and have also been an incredible educator for us all. So thank you so much, Pip, for sitting down with me and recording this episode. Thanks, Jenny. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Doing It Differently, a podcast developed by the Medical Education Unit at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth, Western Australia, led by Dr Fiona Lake and hosted by me, Jenny Chang. I hope this conversation has sparked an interest in creative careers in medicine for you. Until next time.